Welcome back to the program. Back in 1996, welfare as we knew it was forever changed by President Clinton. But while public policy can address issues like food stamps, child care, Medicaid, and many other aspects, it can never address issues of trust. We know from civil rights legislation that no matter what the policy prescriptions are, you can't address what's in the human heart. In the panoply of issues surrounding welfare, you might not think that trust was paramount. In fact, our guest, Temple University professor Judith Levine, found that it was one of the defining issues for low-income women, that it has an ongoing corrosive and paralyzing effect in the lives of these women, and that even public policy cannot address it. Judith Levine is an assistant professor of sociology at Temple University and the author of the new book, Ain't No Trust, How Bosses, Boyfriends, and Bureaucrats Fail Low-Income Mothers and Why It Matters. Judith Levine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. In many ways, a lot of the work and a lot of the information in this book comes out of really two things that you looked at, both this issue of trust before welfare reform and after, and it's one of the things that, that apparently changed very little. Talk a little about that. Yes, it did change very little. Uh, I started doing these interviews. I did two sets of interviews, as you said, one in the mid-90s, right before welfare reform came down in 96, uh, and another set of interviews in the mid-2000s. And I expected things to be really different in lots of ways because this was a major policy change. And while certainly there were differences, the main story is that lives lived in poverty are much the same on either side of welfare reform. And one of the really enduring facets of uh, life for low-income mothers is this palpable feeling of distrust. Talk a little bit about the ways in which this revealed itself in your interviews both before and after welfare reform how this issue of trust began to manifest itself in the conversations that you had with these women. Right. That's a great question, especially since when I first started doing the interviews in the mid-90s, I was in no way thinking about distrust or looking for distrust or asking about distrust. I was really just interested in uh, how low-income mothers who have welfare histories make it into the workforce because Despite uh, common stereotype, many, many welfare recipients do work, and I was interested in how they manage that. Uh, but as I talked to them, and especially when I sat back and read all of the interviews when I was done, I suddenly realized that, that in every area of their lives, they were really describing distrust. So the way it manifests itself, sometimes they used the words, I don't trust anyone. That was kind of a common sentence. Uh, one mother even said, I, I, I trust my mother and no one else. So there was specific talking about trust, but there was also kind of indirect talking about trust. So people talked about how they can't count on their caseworkers to actually give them the benefits to which they are legally due. They can't count on employers to treat them fairly. They can't rely on boyfriends to um, to be economic or emotional supports. They 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 don't uh, find the childcare workers um, treat their children well. So so their stories about their experiences are stories about how they can't count on people, um, you know, which is a form of distrust. How much of a difference was there, in, in, as you talked to these women, 
in distrust of institutions versus distrust of individuals? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question because I really looked at both. Although the two are not as different as you might think because the institutions are represented by a person. So the women formed their opinions of welfare offices, say, or workplaces um, through their interactions with this person called a caseworker or this person called a boss. Um, so, so there were similarities between the distrust um, in, in the institutions and the distrust in, say, boyfriends, because it did manifest itself in an interaction with an individual person. Uh, but there were some differences, of course, and I think the main difference is that the institutions that low-income people come in contact with um, are very powerful in their lives, and they have very little power to exert any agency over them, uh, and they kind of realize early on that their interests are completely not aligned with the interests of the institution. And all of the theoretical literature on trust shows that that's a recipe for distrust when you know that your interests are not aligned with the person you're interacting with. And so uh, these people who represent these institutions, the caseworkers or the bosses or even sometimes childcare workers, um, they knew were representing an institution that was, had opposite interests from their own. And that's a little different from interacting uh, with, with, with friends and family, for instance. To what extent did that grow out of a power balance, or power imbalance, I should say, that existed between the individuals and the institutions as well? I, I believe that power imbalance has everything to do with the level of distrust. So one of my main arguments in the book is that... Um, you know, someone might read, well, distrust, uh, you know, it's this negative thing, and we can talk more about why it's negative in a minute. But uh, so if low-income people are distrusting, well, this is just, you know, yet another thing we have to fix about them. And I argue that that's really the wrong conclusion from this. What we should conclude from this is that low-income people are constantly in you know, plucked in, plumped down into an institutional setting where they have no power, and that's what produces distrust. So I argue instead we have to kind of fix the larger structures to to promote trust uh, rather than fix the women themselves. Even to the extent, though, that we can fix the institutions, is there a basic economic insecurity? that leads to this distrust that is that is less than fixable within the context that you're talking about? Right. I do think that economic insecurity uh, promotes distrust. And, I, you know, I certainly find this, and in um, uh, more experimental trust research, people find this. Um, so low-income people are less likely to trust. This comes up in survey work and in lots of different studies. Uh, and... Again, I think this has to do with their their assessing that they don't share interests with others and knowing that they don't have the power to hold others accountable. Uh, I think it also has to do with the fact that um, we're talking about people who are so economically insecure that if something goes wrong, 
they fall into a desperate situation. If a caseworker cuts them off of benefits to which they are legally entitled, uh, they lose their homes. They are on the street with children. Uh, they can't feed their children. Um, and, uh, you know, I have one woman uh, who I interviewed named Bethany Grant talks very poignantly about how uh, she took a job, and because she took a job, she was cut off all of her benefits, even though she wasn't supposed to be, and she ended up on the street. Luckily, a friend took her in. She lost her apartment in the dead of the Chicago winter. Um, so, so being so economically fragile means that... Um, you're really, really vulnerable. And so I, I believe these women are more distrustful because they know the stakes of making a bad trust decision are so high. Is this something that you found that can be addressed within the context of policy? I made the analogy in the introduction of civil rights, for example. It's hard to change what's in somebody's heart no matter what you do in terms of legislation. Is this a similar kind of issue? I think ultimately you're right that, you know, we can't eradicate distrust with policy unless the policy were completely um, progressive. I mean, if I do believe that if we had a society that, um, you know, gave a livable family stipend to every family, and this is not, you know, unheard of. <laughs> Some of the uh, Scandinavian countries do do this. Um, that if we did that, if we did not have such extreme income inequality, uh, if we did have um, uh, educational systems that really gave every kid a, a fair shot, etc., that a lot of this distrust would go away. Uh, but we are not at a moment in our history <laughs> where this is at all likely, uh, given current budget crises and attitudes towards public spending. Uh, and we sort of uh, see uh, right. kind of the difficulty that that uh, healthcare reform has had um, on this front. But I do think that some smaller level policies, even within our existing structural setup, would make some kind of difference. So, for instance, I think in some ways child care is the best example of this. Um, Low-income mothers have had some really bad experiences with child care. Um, luckily, none of the women I talked to had a severe damage done to a child in child care, although... Um, uh, a recent New, New Republic article um, told the story of a, of a child care worker who put a um, put a pot on to boil it and uh, oil on her stove and left the house and four children died in the, in the resulting fire. Um, but the women I talked to did have children who came home with bruises or or minor burns, um, so they have a real reason to distrust child care. And one policy. Uh, um, change that might address this distrust is if we put more money into increasing the quality of available child care in low-income neighborhoods. Welfare reform did put money into child care, but almost all of that money went into giving mothers subsidies so that they could buy whatever child care existed already. Very little money went into changing the quality of what exists. And I think if we improve the quality of what exists uh, and hence we improve the trustworthiness of child care, that would increase trust in child care. And you could tell a similar 
policy story in some of the other realms as well. Where does education fit into this equation and disparities within education? Well, I think educational institutions are another place where low-income people um, feel they are not served well. And, you know, they're not making this up. Um, <laughs> there's, we have huge inequality in our educational systems. Uh, in, in most of the major cities, you can, you know, drive right over the city line and find, you know, two completely different kindergartens, one with... Uh, a, a teacher and assistant teacher and 20 kids and computers and lots of books and one with one teacher, 35 kids, no computers, no books. Uh, and so because we have such inequality, again, low-income people assess that their interests are not being served, that they are, this is an institution that kind of operates against them rather than for them. Uh, I say this while recognizing that people who work in public education in major cities are incredibly devoted and are trying so hard um, to serve these children, but they're just not given the resources to do it. So I think it's just another place um, that gives people this overwhelming impression that um, that they that their interests are not are not uh, the public's interests. To what extent, if any, do you think that the transparency of technology today has had an impact. The idea that you can look up anything about any institution or anything about anyone. And to what extent does that make a difference? Mm. That's an interesting question. Um, I think that that's helpful. I think it gives some people some sense of power. It gives people some access to information that might be hard to get. It means you're not, you don't rely just on this one caseworker that you know for all of your information. You can go online and find out what the rules really are and what you really are um, legally, what you really uh, legally deserve. Um, but of course, this assumes that people have access to um, to the computers, that they have access to knowledge about how to search online, uh, and we do have a large digital divide in this country. Um, and it also only helps to the extent that uh, what the official rules are that are laid out on a website are what really happens in practice. Uh, a lot of research suggests, um, you know, I have the reports of, of low-income mothers, but there's also research where people have studied caseworkers and the operation of welfare offices and show that there's this thing that uh, is, is often called street-level bureaucracy, that, you know, whatever the written rules are aren't really the rules. What the rules are are what people at the street level actually enact. Uh, and sometimes those are different. And so... In a way, access to the official rules might just reinforce um, a sense of, uh, of disgruntlement about how, how the institutions don't behave the way they're supposed to. To what extent are individuals in institutions, caseworkers, people in welfare offices, etc., and even in child care situations, to what extent are they aware of the distrust that's coming at them? I think they're quite aware um, because because I think they 
feel it. They may not fully understand its ramifications or its sources, but I do think um, that they're aware of it. And, of course, it's not pleasant um, to be interacting with someone who distrusts you. So, you know, it probably doesn't make you behave all that pleasant in response. And so there might be kind of a, a ratcheting up of a bad situation because of it. Um, you know, I think caseworkers have an incredibly hard job, especially post-welfare reform. Um, they are, you know, prior to welfare reform, the job of the caseworker was to cut checks. It was to determine if someone's eligible and then cut the check to them. After welfare reform, which created time limits and work requirements and tried to enforce this idea that um, that welfare is really just about transitioning people into the labor force, suddenly caseworkers are case managers who have to try to address a client's needs um, uh, on every front, try to serve her if she's a domestic violence survivor, try to serve her if she needs um, some basic skills training, uh, etc. This is a really hard job, and caseworkers are not given enough training to do it and are given way too big caseloads to do it effectively. Um, so it's really difficult to do it well, and it's probably very frustrating when you're trying to do it and people um, you feel are not appreciating it or are coming at you with suspicion. So, um, you know, I fully understand why people are coming with suspicion, but I'm sure it, it makes the job even more difficult. Does the gender divide exacerbate this? When, when these women are dealing with other women, is it any different than when they're dealing with men, boyfriends, husbands, employers, what have you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think there, I think there is a lot of ways in which gender matters in this story. Um, and uh, if we talk about, you know, one of the, the, the goals of welfare reform was to promote marriage. And this was a particular interest of, uh, of President Bush's, and he did uh, successfully add money, uh, although not a lot of money, but um, added some money for what are called marriage promotion programs. Um, and, and I argue that there is so much distrust between men and women that these marriage promotion programs are really ineffectual in dealing with it. So what's that distrust about? Again, I talk to women. There are researchers who have talked to men. There is distrust on both sides, uh, and both sides have a story to tell. The women distrust men because they feel that men um, uh, make a lot of demands on them, that men... um, want them to share their money with them, that they want them to share their children with them without um, kind of paying their dues by being there for the children as much as the mothers would like to see. Um, they, Some women tell stories of domestic violence. Some women tell stories of infidelity. Uh, and, and, you know, the bigger story seems to really be about how inhospitable the low-wage labor market is for men. Uh, and that men find it very hard to make financial contributions in a, in a stable and meaningful way. Uh, and 
sometimes in order to do so, they're pushed into the underground economy, which creates lots of havoc in households. So part of it is an economic story, but part of it is also probably a gender relations story. And some of these kinds of dynamics seem to start even in um, even in adolescence, uh, where where boys and girls in low-income communities are really suspicious of each other. David Harding, uh, in his book, Studying Adolescence, covers this quite well. So I think there's there's a mixture of gen- gender attitudes of the kind of incredible pressure in our society for men to prove masculinity um, with the fact that the economic situation for low-wage men does not allow them to fulfill these images we have of masculinity as provider. Is this distrust a kind of permanent condition for women, for example, that move out of poverty, per se, that move into a more middle-class existence, that are able to pull themselves up either individually or through relationships or what have you? Does that distrust continue or does it, does it abate after time? Oh, that is a great question and would be a great study. (laughs) You're giving me ideas. Um, That's something I can really only speculate about because I I did not study women who moved out of poverty. I was studying only women who are in poverty. But I would speculate that distrust would fade somewhat as, um, as people sort of changed class position. Uh, I, I, I think that one, it, it probably wouldn't leave people altogether. I think it's fairly strongly imprinted um, from past experience. Mm-hmm. But I do think that once one was in a position where one did not feel um, at risk of, of real economic disaster, if you trust the wrong person, and after one has more experiences with those that are trustworthy, that the distrust would fade. A big argument in my book is that distrust is not some innate personality trait mm-hmm. or, or, or cultural trait, that distrust is really learned from experience. And so it can be unlearned by, by new experiences, but I think those would have to be fairly um, strong and consistent before it would be unlearned. Judith Levine, the book is Ain't No Trust, How Bosses, Boyfriends, and Bureaucrats Fail Low-Income Mothers and Why It Matters. Judith, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.